I'm just going to jump right in. We've been in a series called The Way I See It. We've been taking a lot of many different societal myths concerning God and speaking some truth to them. We talked about God. We talked about Jesus. We talked about the church, the Holy Spirit. We've talked about prayer. We've talked about all kinds of different subjects. And um, if you missed one, you can jump on rfcpeoria.com and you can uh, go ahead and catch up with what has been preached over the course of the summer. Um, we know that summer is a very busy travel time, and church is, uh, is, the, is the one thing that seems to be missed quite often. And so that's why I like to put them online so that you can go back and listen to them. So, But it's good to see everybody. Hopefully, everybody's had a good start to their school year. All kids are back in school. That means parents are trying to figure out what they're doing with their time again. Some, and some are just rejoicing in the fact that kids are in school. I, it's kind of like a catchy the way for me because I rejoice in the fact that my day off, I can actually have my day off. Um, but then now I'm running kids all over, the, all over creation because they're playing sports and they're in clubs and they're doing all these other different things. So um, they're going to high school football games and yeah, it's just, it's a different kind of busy. And so... Uh, so, but anyway, hopefully everybody has uh, settled into the school year and getting back to some normalcy. So back to this series. So we've been talking about these societal myths, and last week I preached on prayer and really felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit to continue in some of those thoughts on prayer this week, which I haven't done before. So, so we are um, going to talk a little bit more about prayer today. And so one of the things about this series and, and how it was established and the whole, the whole premise of it is, um, is contrasting view, our viewpoints with God's viewpoint and some of the things I've come to realize, especially in our nation as Americans, we value our viewpoint way too much. We look at our viewpoint on every subject and consider it to be the official doctrine or gospel of life. And, um, and sometimes we can get ourselves into trouble with that. And I th the problem is we have come to think that truth, we have the liberty to determine what is and what is not truth. And if you are a believer in Christ and you are a Bible, a scripture-loving believer, you cannot make that assessment. Because the Bible teaches us what is truth, and that is it. That is the end all to all things truth, if you are a believer. And, uh, and that's the problem, though, that happens is sometimes our viewpoint is actually right. Notice I said sometimes. But when it is right, it gives us license to think that our viewpoint is always right. And so it challenges us. And so, but most of the time, the way we see things is actually incorrect according to Scripture. So the premise of this, script, this series was established on Proverbs chapter 4, verse number 23. The Good News Version of the Bible says, Be careful how you think, for your life is shaped by your thoughts. And so when you think about that idea and that thought is our entire lives, our success in life, our failure in life, our, our, our growth in life, our journey is shaped by how we think. How you think about yourself is going to be a big part of how you see, how you see God. This it, is very true. It's a very difficult thing. Uh, I'll just use myself as an example. When you have a, a father issue in your life, uh, when you grew up with an issue with your father, whether he be absent or he was mistreating you or just really just didn't, wasn't the father that maybe he could have or should have been in, that, in those growing years, you tend to have some kind of issues with your heavenly father because you view yourself, and this is not just for men, this is women as well, you view yourself 
in light of how you think your father views you. And so that's then transposed upon God to say, this is, this, I, I, I find myself with very little worth or very skilled or very talented simply because I never really felt that in my growing years, if that makes sense. I hope that makes some sense. So we transpose that onto God, and then we have to go through the journey of life of breaking that off. And God is the one who ends up doing it. There is some work that we do on that side as well. But that's kind of the way, what we're talking about is the way we think is going to shape our lives. So the way you think about God, the way you think about Jesus, the way you think about the church, the way you think about the Holy Spirit, the way you think about prayer, the way you think about a lot of different things is going to shape how your life grows. The way you think about money, the way you think about culture and society, the way you think about these things is ultimately going to shape your life. And so... The myth that we are going to deal with today, um, and, and this is going to be very different because I'm just going to give you a myth and then the rest of this message is going to contrast that myth. And so the myth that we're going to deal with today is that I don't know what to say to God so I can't pray. And I know that's been an issue in a lot of folks' lives. Um, there are so many things when it comes to prayer and seeking the Lord that, that we struggle with. And I could preach endlessly 52 weeks of sermons on prayer and still not hit everything. But the idea is that there's this communication that God desires to have with us. And if we get to the place where we prioritize it, because we don't always do that, right? Everything else usually is more important than prayer to God. And if we're just being honest... I mean, so if we're just really being honest and said, I, I pray maybe to the point of five to 10 minutes a day, and we think that that's getting the job done. I mean, the idea of this communication between us and God means I'm establishing relationship with God through my speaking to him and him speaking to me and my listening, and five to 10 minutes a day, you know, that should get that job done. That's, and I'm not saying that we actually think that way, but that's how we actually end up acting. And so I, I, I always liken it just like the Bible does to, to the marriage relationship. And if you spent five to ten minutes a day with your spouse, how healthy would that relationship actually be? It's the same context with God. If you spend five to ten minutes a day with God, how healthy is that relationship going to actually be? And so we get this, this idea in our head, well, I don't really know what to say, so I can't pray. I will say something that I find to be interesting, and I've, I've taken note of this um, lots of different times, and I've seen it, and I've heard it in prayer, different prayer meetings. I've been to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds upon hundreds and maybe even thousands of prayer meetings over my 20 years of serving Christ, and I've had as many conversations with people. It's interesting what happens when... You have a conversation with a person, and then they pray. It's almost like two different people are talking. It, I found it to be interesting. We have this conditioning in our minds, whether maybe you grew up in church, and you grew up hearing prayer a certain way, and that's how then you pray. It seems like people speak regular English, then they start to pray, and they speak King James English, that kind of thing. You know, and I'm not knocking it. It's not like a bad thing, but it just shows how your environment shapes the way you actually speak to God. So if you grow up in an environment that's constantly bitter and sad and angry, you're going to speak that way even to God. If you grow up in an environment that's using lofty language when they pray, that's going to be oftentimes how you pray. And so what I want to tell you as we begin this message is, 
Praying and seeking the Lord is less about what you say and more about the heart and the priority and the commitment you're making. You don't have to have the right words. You don't have to say, Father God, 477,000 times in a three-minute prayer. You just have to have this heart willing to be committed to Christ and committing to knowing him and being known by him. And so my hope today is when you leave here that you would not just understand prayer more, but that you would be able to walk out of here with this hunger and this appetite to seek God, to spend more time with him, to talk to him to like you never have, and, and more importantly, to listen to him like you never have before. See, I was really, I've always been, since I was this big, I've always been really good at talking. You could, you could ask anybody, people who I don't even know, they would tell you, oh man, that guy, he could talk. And, and, and still to this day in my life, people would say the same thing. Yeah, he can talk. Didn't listen very well. Still, from time to time, struggle to listen. But I could really talk. And so when it comes to communicating with God, it's, a, it, it's literally a two-way street. You speak, he speaks, you speak, he speaks. But the problem becomes that we want to speak so much because there's so much going on that we don't hear what other people are saying. Or you might be praying and then you pause and then God begins to do something in your heart and then, oh, let me, I just forgot something else, God. I need this and this and this and this and this and this. I need a new job. I need a new car. I need a raise. I need a house. I need my kids to behave. I need, I need this. I need new shoes. I need, you know what I'm saying? We get this idea and then say, oh, God, I hear you. Oh, but God, you just reminded me, I need this, and I need, same thing we do in conversations. We interrupt one another in conversations all the time when something we say sparks a trigger to, oh, I remember a story about this, and let me just tell you about this. That's, this, is, this is communication that we have. And so my hope is that we, when you leave today, you have this willingness and this desire to have this open communication with God where you are giving but receiving more than what you actually give. And so... This, this message is born out of Luke chapter 11, verse number 1. The Bible says, Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, and as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. So the request was, teach us to pray. And so they've been hanging out with Jesus a while now, right? And they have seen him do all these crazy, crazy things, taking a little bit of food and feeding thousands of people, seeing him spit in dirt and make mud, put it on someone's eyes and they become healed of blindness. You know, they see it crazy, but here's what's crazy. If you look at scripture, never once did the disciples see any one of these miracles or one of these huge things that God did. And never once did they say to Jesus, Oh man, this spitting in the mud thing. I don't know how you pulled that off, but can you teach me that? They didn't, they didn't ask that. Or when he would, would, would speak truth into someone's life, when he met the woman at the well, and he would ask her for a drink, and she's shocked that this Jewish rabbi would ask for a drink of this unrighteous woman, and then go on to tell her all kinds of things about her that he could not know. They didn't ask to be taught how to do that, but they did ask to be taught how to pray. Because when they saw Jesus praying, they saw this intimate connection between him and the Father. And that's, after all, what they hungered for. And if you think about your own life, we hunger for intimate connections. 
the great, I, I, my, one of my pastors that I served in, in my years of ministry, when he preached one day, he said this, and it just settled in my spirit so, so much that I'll never forget it. He believed that the greatest human need was to be fully known and fully loved. To be fully known for every, who you are and fully loved for who you are. And that, when I think about that, I, I, I read, my spirit resonates with that. Like, I, I, I would love for people to actually know who I am and then love me because of it. But oftentimes, too often in our lives, in our society, we start to share a little bit of who we are and we become judged for who we are or we become condemned for who we are or criticized for who we are, not necessarily loved for who we are. And so what happens? We, we decide to show a little bit less of ourselves. We decide to, to keep that so close to the vest that we're never truly open with anyone. And so the disciples see this intimate thing that Jesus is having, and he says, teach us to pray. And a couple, matter of fact, a couple different times in the New Testament, you're going to see where Jesus shows us how to pray. For the context of the rest of our message, I'm going to focus on Matthew chapter 9. Verses 9 through 13. And this is hopefully a reminder for some of you, but a a launching point for many of us when it comes to prayer and seeking God. And so Matthew chapter 6, verse number 9 through 13, the Bible says, this is then how you should pray. I love Jesus. He's so simple. Jesus teaches how to pray. Okay, this is how you should pray. And then he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we, have, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus said, this is how you then should pray. Now let me first start out by saying, this is not necessarily a quote-unquote repetitive prayer that you, should say, that you need to say. It doesn't hurt to say it, but it's not one that you need to, to, to pray, and, and then you speak that and say, okay, good, I prayed. Jesus taught me how to pray. I prayed I'm good. Whole faiths have been born out of that kind of thing. This is actually more of a structure on how you should recognize who Jesus is as you begin to speak to him. So we're going to break this passage of scripture down a little bit. We're going to see what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer. And it's a gift, I believe. Here's a gift that God's saying, I'm going to give you. I'm going to show you and going to teach you how to pray. So what should we say? What should we do? What's this supposed to look like? And so you receive the note sheet. There's going to be some fill in the blanks on there. There's some blank space on the back for you to take your own notes. My hope is that you follow along with us and then maybe consult it later on. But number one, when it comes to prayer and how to pray, praying, before I get to number one, praying is about seeking God. That's all it is. It's about seeking him, seeking him in conversation, seeking his presence, seeking him. And so the number one thing when it comes to prayer, the, number, the first thing, not number one as in the most important, but the first thing that I want to talk about is seek God's presence with a worshipful heart. Part of why the, 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 the Western culture of church has established worship the way we have is because seeking God through worship and through praise and through worship is an avenue of opening up our hearts to then receive from him when he's going to speak to us. 
Some people have turned it into this preferential thing to say, well, you know, I don't want the worship part, but I want the word part. Well, the worship part is what prepares you for the word part. Because it's even, it's even modeled. Look at verse number nine. This is then how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. They're coming to God with this heart that says, God, you are holy. And in, their, in this context, Jesus is saying it as, you are worthy of all worship, all honor, all glory, all praise, because you are holy. The word hallowed literally means holy, righteous, blameless, perfect. That's their approach to God. Hallowed be your name. God, you are holy. Father, I come into your presence and I speak that you are holy, that you are righteous. Now, here's the challenge with that. When you begin to speak that God is holy and that God is righteous and he is without blame, that means that whatever happens in your life, regardless of what it is, good and bad, you're telling God he's still holy, not stupid. You're telling God that he's still righteous, not wrong. You're telling God that he is still worthy and not messed up in his head for what he did to you. This is where the challenge comes. This is not a, a, one of these things where it's like, oh, I'm telling you you're holy, but I really don't think that because my life is screwed up and I believe it's your fault. So when you come to the Father, you recognize that he is holy. You recognize that he's pure. You recognize that he is set apart. And that's what he actually created you to be the same way. I'll tell you a, a quick story. I'm, I'm going I'm to make it quick because it's very long, but I'm going to make it very quick. It took place in December of 1998, December 20th to be exact, of 1998. It was a Sunday morning. I'd been attending church for about six weeks during this time, and I was only there for one reason. The only reason I ever walked into the doors of a church in my life was for a woman, and so I was there just for her because she told me I had to go. So she'd been in charge since day one, whether I want to admit it or not. She told me I had to go, so I go. It was crazy environment. Long story short, really, really crazy in what my mind was like a reckless environment. And certainly God was not the reason that I was going to church. I hear people say, you know, I woke up this morning and just felt like I needed to be in church. I never felt that. Like not even in the six weeks I was going to church, not even on December 20th, 1998, did I feel like I needed to be in church. I wanted to be in church because I wanted the woman. And that was the only way to get the, the woman was to get to church. So I figured, you know, I can play just church thing. And she's not going to be any wiser. She's, come on, I got this. And so I was not there for God. And, and so then I, 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 I had this experience with God before my pastor even closed the message, before he even gave any kind of altar call response, I found myself just weeping in tears, uncontrollably having no stinking clue why I am a man. I don't cry. And I can probably count on one hand up until that day how many times I had cried. I was 23 years old, and the only time I ever cried was when I actually physically hurt myself. Emotionally, eh, and as I got older and older and spent some time in the United States military and all the different things, cry? No. Soldiers don't cry. Baseball players, they don't cry. You know, there's a whole movie, the, one of the famous lines, there's no crying in baseball. That, that's, that's a line in a movie. There's no crying. I, I don't cry. But I found myself weeping, crying. Here I am, this big, tough man, and I'm like, I'm crying. I don't know what to do with myself. And it was literally 
out of the sheer presence and holiness of God that I found myself to be this sinful, broken wreck of a human being, being a complete fraud with anyone and everyone around me. And here I found myself in the holy presence of God. And it was that day that I recognized that God was really holy. And I got up out of my seat, walked to the front, laid down on my face, cried like a baby for the next 20 minutes, gave my life to Christ. Here I am today. But it was that holiness and that righteousness that caused me to realize I was a mess and I needed Jesus. And I didn't even really fully understand it in that moment. I even told my pastor, I have no idea what's wrong with me. He was able to give me some, some teaching and some encouragement. But we forget about that. We forget about God's holiness because we get busy and life sets in and other things are important and other things take precedent. So we think they do. And, and then reality is that scripture is saying to us in this moment, spending time in prayer with God, we have to seek his presence with a worshipful heart. You can't just come in to his presence with any old heart to say, here I am, God, give me what I need. That's how we try to pray because we are so needy and we're so the center of our own universe that we fail to realize that God is the one who is truly the creator and the center of our universe. We just don't give him that place. So when you come to the presence of God, verse number nine is not about repeating hallowed be your name. It's an a recognition of who he actually is, that he is holy and that he is righteous. Number two, when you come into the presence of God, when you come in to seek God through this model that Jesus has given us, you need to seek God's priorities over your own. Oh my gosh, I know I just lost half of you in this one. I probably lost myself a time or two in this one. That's why, see, I pray the way I pray, every, and, and, and everybody can hear it, and, um, and virtually anybody who's been here for any length of time could get behind the microphone and pray the same prayer I pray when I start service. They really can, because I say it every single week. I decrease so that you increase. My priorities, my will, my, and I say that oftentimes because uh, it's not always the reality of life, and sometimes I just got to speak some things that aren't as though they are. And so when we come into the presence of God, we need to seek God's priorities over our own. Verse number 10 of that same Matthew chapter 6 scripture your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, there you don't understand. We, we don't even comprehend the power of this verse. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. His kingdom and his will never looks like our kingdom and our will. And so when you come into, you are coming with a worshipful heart. God, you are holy, you are righteous. Your kingdom come and your will be done. We haven't even asked God for anything yet. We've just come into his presence and we are actually establishing, God, your priorities are more important than my priorities. Here's the thing I'll, I'll, I'll submit to you. This is why I'm a big proponent and a big fan of praying, praying in the beginning of the day versus the end of the day. I can even give you some biblical theology on this, but now, right now this message is not necessarily the time because I don't have the time to do this. But the reality is there is something very, very biblical and very, very critical about you giving God the first part of your day rather than you trying to give him the end of your day. Because 
it, it just changes everything. It's kind of, it's this first fruits mentality, so to speak, that it applies not just to prayer, but it applies to our, our personal lives, it applies to our financial lives, it applies to so many different parts of our lives. But when you give God the first part of your day, he tends to make the rest of your day a pretty good one. Or even if it's not a really good one, you tend to be able to handle the rest of your day pretty well because you started out the right frame of mind. Instead of rolling out of bed, oh my God, I'm so tired. I just want to stay in bed. I don't want to go to work. I don't want to deal with these kids today. I just, I'm just going to go back to sleep. I'm going to hit the snooze and go back to sleep. And then we snooze and snooze and snooze and snooze. And then, oh crap, I'm late for work. Oh my gosh, now I got to rush around. Last thing we're doing is thinking about praying. Last thing we're doing is thinking about seeking the Lord. We are running off to work because now we're late. And then we get behind, the, and, it, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, we get behind the wheel of a car, and crap starts happening. People start cutting us off. We start yelling at them. We probably drop a few words we probably shouldn't speak because the Bible says not to use foul language. So don't be the, the person that says that. I, I saw a t-shirt the other day. I'm a Christian, and I cuss a little. Yeah, don't be that because that's not biblical. But that's what happens when our priorities are out of whack. You like we get frustrated. You get then you get you fly and you get pulled over, and it's the stupid cops' fault. You see where we're going? It starts a wreck of a day because all we had to do was prioritize our the presence of God and seeking God over our own priorities. Because the reality is this: How much good did that extra twenty minutes of sleep actually do? Let's be real: twenty more minutes of sleep. At the end of my sleep doesn't do any more good for me than, than, than just getting up. Matter of fact, I would suggest just getting up and getting rolling is actually better for you. Take God out of the equation. It's actually better for you just to get up with the alarm clock and get rolling. You'll have more energy. Because if, you're, if you start the day snoozing, you're going to try to snooze the whole day. Don't get me wrong. I love the snooze. So here's what I do. I set my alarm early so that I actually can snooze. And so when I get up, I'm actually getting up at the time I want to get up to pray. See, there's ways of tricking yourself into doing the things that you should do. And now, I'm willing to admit this. Most aren't, but I'm willing to admit this. I am selfish. I am. I am all about what I need and what I want and what I like. You know, I can get annoyed with things real easily because I'm selfish and I want what I want. And I once heard a story of this young man. His name was Andy. And if that, that this is, honestly, this is a story that I've had locked in the archives for a long time. So if your name's Andy in here, or any derivative of which, I am not speaking of you. Andy was a troublemaker. The story goes like this. He was the kind of kid who would always cause trouble wherever he went. One night, he had caused so much trouble that his mother sent him to bed with no dessert. Mama ever sends you to bed with no dessert? I've been sent to bed with no dessert a lot in my life. I think that's why I love cake so much now, because can't nobody tell me I can't have it. Because my mama told me I couldn't have it all the time because I was bad. So imagine that. No dessert. That's just not cool. Of all the things you're going to take away from me, take the shower away. Take brushing my teeth away. Don't take the cake away. Come on, we're just having fun. It's okay to do that in church. So he has to go to bed. And he has to go to bed without dessert. So this young man named Andy goes to bed, gets onto his knees, and he begins to pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. 
If I should die before I wake, God, please save me some of that chocolate cake. You laugh, and I'm being funny, but the reality is that's a lot like how we pray. We're always asking for chocolate cake all the time. What does that mean? You know, when, uh, when we pray, our prayer sometimes is all about us. It's what I want. It's what I need. I need a raise. I need a new car. I need a new house. I need you to fix my spouse. No, no, no. Don't fix me, God. Fix my spouse. My wife, fix her. She's messed up. Fix her. My kids, they are a jacked up mess. Fix them. And it's not because, in that moment, let's just be honest, it's not because we so desperately love our children that we have to have them in this beautiful relationship with Jesus. No, no, no. It's because they're driving me nuts. And I want some sanity, so fix them, Jesus. Now, I'm being funny and I'm laughing, but come on, the reality is this is how we approach God. We approach God and says, I need this. Oh, if you're single in this place, God, I need a man. Send me a man. No, you don't need a man. You need Jesus. He's all the man you need. Let him send you. I used to tell my daughter this all the time. I speak this over my children all the time. And I would tell my, my oldest daughter, my youngest daughter, even my son, but more for the women, I would speak this to young girls that I, that I would preach to and, and mentor as a youth pastor. I'd say, you know what? Let me tell you the man that you need. The man that you need is one who seeks God and finds you. That's the man that you need. And not just some fraud who's perpetuating some untruth to say, oh yeah, I found you because Jesus led me to you. If you are yourself so lost in the presence of God, anyone who finds you would have to seek him to find you. That's what I say to my children with the hopes that whoever they end up with, I'm not going to have to hurt. Again, it's all about me. I don't want to go to jail. I'm just playing. But the reality is this is how we approach God. We come to him in prayer and we think that it's all about us and what we need. If you notice Jesus' model in his teaching, holy are you, Lord. Worthy are you, Lord. Hallowed be your name. Oh, yeah, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not my kingdom come, not my will be done, God, but your kingdom come and your will be done. In prayer, we have to come to him with this realization that life's not about us. Newsflash, folks, it's not about you. God did not put breath in your lungs so that you could work your 40 hours, collect your paycheck, go home, sit in front of your 60-inch screen TV, watch football, and then go to bed and start over the next day. That's not what God created you for. He created you for so much more than that, but he created you first to worship him, to first adore him, to first recognize who he is. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, the Bible says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. It's, ama it's amazing. We have this, uh, this, is this, this desire to seek God for what I need and then get mad at God when I don't have it. Yet if the Bible is true, which I believe it to be, if I seek God's kingdom first and his will, guess what? He gives me everything that I need. Problem is we got to establish the difference between a need and a want. You need a roof over your head. You need food in your stomach. You need love. You don't need a man. 
You don't need a raise. You don't need a house. You don't need a car. You need food. You need a roof. You, need, you see what I'm saying? You need these things. God gives you these things. And then, oh, because of your obedience and your love, there's this thing that I'm not even going to preach today because I don't have the time called favor. Where God shines his favor upon you. You want to understand favor and, its con- and in all of its form? Go read Proverbs chapter 3. That's all I'm going to leave you with for that for right now because I don't have time to get into favor. So the question you have to ask yourself, and that I want you to ask yourself, this is not rhetorical. You don't have to answer out loud. So what are you seeking? Really, honestly, what are you seeking? What's your life truly about? In your prayer time, in your speaking time, whether it's the five minutes that you've devoted to him or the hour or two hours a day that you're trying to spend with him, what is it really about? Is it about him first or is it about you? Because here's the thing, Jesus went on to say in verse number 11, the third thing that you should seek when you pray is seek seek God's provision for your daily needs. Look what he says. He says, give us today our daily bread. God, you provide what I need. My daily bread. You are everything that I need. I remember when I was growing up in my faith, I was in church and we used to sing this song that was like my song. It's called Jehovah Jireh, my provider. And I used to lose it to that song. I would be dancing. I'd be shouting. I'd be going all kinds of crazy because that song just resonated in my spirit in such a way that I truly knew and believed that he was my provider of everything. That's what it means. Jehovah Jireh means the God that provides. The Lord who provides. Provides what? Yes. Everything. You need peace, he's the provider of peace. You need money, he's the provider of money. The Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hill. I've said this before, and it's funny, and it's a joke, but you laugh, you laugh at me, but I'm serious. The Bible says that God owns a cattle on a thousand hill. I'm like, all right, cool, sell one of those cattle and pay my rent. Sounds crude, sounds harsh, but it's what he does. He is the provider of all things. That's why, and this goes all the way back to the very beginning when God called Moses to, to send, to, to let the people, set the people free of Israel. When he approached Pharaoh, Moses asked him, he said, who on earth am I that, I that he would even listen to me? Who do I even say is sending me? And he said, God said, tell him I am has sent you. And that just sounds, see, in our language, that just sounds weird because we'd say, I am what sent you? But in the Hebrew language, when it says I am, it literally meant the creator of all things, the one who provides everything, the one who is all things, the one who's above all things, the one who knows all things. That's what that word encompasses. So I am sent you. Who's I am? Everything. There's this power and understanding that he is the provider of your needs. No, your job is not the provider. He is the provider. You don't have to go get two, three, four, five, six jobs. Maybe he calls you to do that. And if he does, do it and do it faithfully. But he is the provider of everything that you need. We get so, we will spend so much more time working to try to provide for our family's needs, failing to realize he's the one who's required, his word required to provide for them. Listen to that song. Beautiful song. But so everything that we have Everything that we are is because he has given us these gifts and he has given us this ability to work and to earn wealth. It's even biblical that he gave us these gifts to to work and to earn wealth, but not to provide for our needs. That's his job. The ability that he's given us is to worship him, to glorify him, and to take care of his kingdom. 
That's why if you look at Scripture, the Bible talks about, like in the, in the Old Testament, there was at least almost 26 to 28%, depending on what theologians you talk about, of every person's income that was required of them. And that was just the requirements of them, not the love that they're supposed to shower out to one another. And if you go to the New Testament, Jesus, some people are like, oh, I don't like the tithe. Okay, cool. Ignore the tithe. I'm cool with that. Just go ahead and do what Jesus said. Give everything away. The whole goal was actually let me use my gifts, use my abilities to establish wealth to bless someone else. When God is referring to himself as Jehovah Jireh, the provider of all things, that means he's got something for you that provides for your needs, or he even has someone sometimes for you that provides for your needs. That's why this church does the things that it does. That's why we go to the laundromat every single week. Perfect example is last week, this past, last Sunday. You, you, saw, you saw God move specifically when they walk into a laundromat. It's already one thing to walk into a laundromat and be a blessing to people who are in need. But to walk into a laundromat whose coin machine just broke. And you're walking in with $200 in quarters. You see, these are the kinds of things that if you are open and willing to be the one that God uses to provide for other people's needs, he makes things happen. That's what happened just at last week's laundromat. And, then, and I could give you a countless stories. We've been doing it for five and a half years, providing people a simple need of laundry and seeing what God has done through that time. Same thing with the back-to-school bashes that we've done, those uniforms that we've given away, the socks and the underwear, the haircuts, all the things. All that is is a little thing to provide for people's needs. Why? Because that's what God called us to do. So God equipped you and he gifted you to earn wealth so that you could give it back to him. And while you're giving it back to him, he's going to make sure you have everything you ever need. Because that's the idea of approaching the kingdom of God and of seeking God is seeking God's provision for your daily needs. God, give me today my daily bread. That's all I need, my daily bread. God supplies those needs. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19 says this, and the same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs. See, Paul was teaching, and people looked at Paul the same way y'all, most people look at pastors and say, oh, they're good to go. Look, look at them. They're good to go. I mean, they've got what they need. I mean, you walk into this place, oh, Pastor Mike, he got, he got shoes, he got jeans, he got nice shirts, he's, he's good to go. He, he don't need any of this stuff that he's preaching but the reality is that people don't realize is the same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. The same God who takes care of me, look around the room, there's some pretty well taken care of folks. The same God that takes care of them will be the same God that takes care of you. And it all comes from his glorious riches. See, folks want to look at somebody and think, oh, yeah, I remember this. I remember this. Oh my gosh, I remember it like it was yesterday person walked into my pastor's house and immediately this judgmental spirit came upon them and said, oh yeah, he's all about the money. He has this big, beautiful house, decorated beautifully. It's like, oh yeah, church pay him too much money. That's their thought. What they don't know is that God gave him the property. God gave him the people to do the work. God did all this amazing things that inside of that situation that he actually was blessed so much that he didn't even have any, almost any kind of debt from a house that he had. Not because of anything that he did or anything that the church did, but what people did. People are given wealth to help provide for other people's needs. 
And guess what that did for him? He was able to then be the one providing for other people's needs. See, that's the process. So when you're asking God for your daily bread, when you're asking him for your provision, understand that it's going to come in a lot of ways. It doesn't have to just come by you working 80 hours a week. Because you working 80 hours a week means you're not spending time with your family. means you're not spending time with Jesus. Sorry, let me get off that box now. Number four. I've got one more after this. This one's going to be quick and easy because it's just simple and it's quick and easy. Number four. When you come into the presence of God, you have to seek God's pardon for your sins. Seek God's pardon for your sins. Verse number 12, and forgive us our debts as we, has, have also, we, have, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here's what I want you to understand in this. Go back, go back. Go back to that verse. Here's what I want you to understand about this verse. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. If you're a part of the message last week in prayer, when I talked about how God, so, so the way your heart is drawn towards people and your unforgiveness matters to God. And here is Jesus' words, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Meaning, anybody who's done you wrong, we've forgiven them. And because, God, I have forgiven them, would you please forgive me? Jesus would go on to say in another capacity, say, how can you be forgiven if you will not forgive? I know it's hard, it's difficult, it's painful, it's hurting to actually say, I forgive someone for something they did wrong when they didn't even seek forgiveness. Notice, see, Jesus isn't saying that, oh, they're seeking your forgiveness, so you need to forgive them. (laughs) No, no, no. He's saying you need to forgive them whether they seek it or not. And only thing, the only person that's hurt by unforgiveness is you. I heard one, one person say that unforgiveness in your heart is the same thing as drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. The only person it will ever hurt is you. So when you forgive someone, it's not for them, it's for you. In times in my life, I've had to forgive people that have hurt me that have not sought forgiveness. They've not come to me and say, you know what, Mike, I'm sorry that I did that. I'm sorry I treated you that way. I'm sorry that I said those things. I'm sorry that I stabbed, you get what I'm saying? They, nobody ever, people, not nobody, but folks that come, don't come and do that. I still forgive them anyway, because I know if I don't go back to that passage of scripture, I'm going to struggle with the first part. I'm going to struggle being forgiven if I won't forgive. So we have to seek God's pardon for our sin. And this is the part where we come to God and we ask for forgiveness. Notice the first thing that we notice that here's what I, here's what I find to be pretty interesting in this process. So we're entering the presence of God with a worshipful heart. We're seeking his priorities over our own, very critical. We're seeking his provision for our daily needs. Notice that you are coming into the presence of God. You're worshiping him. You're acknowledging him. You're seeking his priority. You're asking for what your daily needs. You're asking for your needs to be provided long before you're ever asking for forgiveness. Because here's the reality. When it comes to you coming into the presence of God, forgiveness is part of the process. It's not the earning process. Okay, we sometimes, God, God, forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me from my this, my that, my this, my that. We begin to label these things. And we think that, okay, now, because I've asked forgiveness, now I deserve his glory. Now I deserve his presence. Now I deserve his provision. But that's not, that's not the process that Jesus laid out. Acknowledge who he is. Ask him to give you what he already said he would give you. Jehovah Jireh, the provider, the God who provides. 
then forgive us our debts as we have forgiven others. I don't know about you. For some, here's what I, here's the way I realize. I said, for some people, this takes place once a week in their life. If you're like me, it's every two minutes of your life. Because I know I, I make mistakes all the time. It just kind of depends on where you are. But literally, it is falling down before God and say, God, I want to ask your forgiveness for the sin in my life. Not because there's a big difference in being sorry because you got caught versus sorry because you're ready to move forward. And here's the difference. Sorry because I got caught, whether by God or by a friend or a spouse or whatever, usually leads to how do I do better at covering it up versus repentance, which means, God, I am sorry. Here's my sin. I'm turning my back on that, and I'm walking away. There's a big difference between the two. Number five. Oh, not, not yet, not yet, not yet. I must. This should be a regular piece and a regular portion of your prayer. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all wickedness. It just requires a confession. If we confess, God forgives. It's over, it's done, it's finished, it's gone. It's over, it's done, it's finished, it's gone. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. It's over, it's done, it's finished, it's gone. We want to keep on coming to God with the same sin that he's already forgiven us for. Not, I'm not saying that you've sinned in the same way, you don't need to ask forgiveness. What I'm saying is you look at the, the life that you've made and the struggles and the challenges and choices, and the decisions that you've made, and you, you want to keep on repenting for them. But God says, it's over, it's finished, it's gone, it's done. It's done. It's finished. You're washed clean. You are brand new. And so I'm going to encourage you when you come to God and you're praying on a regular basis and you're asking him to forgive you, to be humbled and ask for the forgiveness of the sin and then realize that it is gone. It is finished. You don't have to hold on to it any longer. Worship team, come and get set. The last thing I'm going to, I hope this message is helping in some way. Bring all of you. give them a second to come and get in place. Preach this last point and finish this up. Number five, the last thing that we can get into this message here from Jesus's model of prayer. So notice the first parts are all about glorifying him, all about recognizing who he is, all about setting his priorities above yours. Then it's your daily needs, then it's your forgiveness. And then this one is powerful because this one is going to be the one that helps establish righteousness in your life. Number five, seek God's power to overcome temptation. Seek God's power to overcome temptation. Verse 13, the Bible says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Deliver us from the evil one. If you haven't heard anything for the last 30 minutes that I've been preaching, this is probably the most powerful piece of scripture that you're going to find. Laser focus on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. That just wipes out half your argument. Oh, but you don't understand what I experience. Your temptations are no different than mine. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. 
this is just Jesus. Notice what it does not say. I, I, ha, I have a, a habit of doing this every single time I ever read the scripture. Notice it does not say. The scripture does not say that God will not allow things to happen to you that you cannot handle. People get this twisted all the time. In good, te- good intentions, they say, well, you know what? God will never send you anything your way that you can't handle. Not true. Live from the pit of hell. If you're going to stand and believe that, you're going to fall quickly. Because the reality is the journey of life, guess what? You can't handle it. But with Christ being the, ga- the bridge over the gap of our sin and our ability to handle situations with him, anything is possible. With him, we can walk through any storm, through any fire, and come out very, very clean on the other side. In and of yourself, you cannot. But what does it say? Temptation in your life are no different than others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. And he will not allow the temptation to, to, to take you in such a way where he will not show you a way out. There's always a way out. Regardless of what the temptation is, regardless of what the sin is, there's always a way out. And it's not even just in sin. Think about it like this. When you're tempted to think less of yourself, there's a way out. When you're tempted to say, I'm not worthy of this, there's a way out. When you're tempted to believe something that God never said about you, there's a way out. When you're tempted to sin, there is a way out. It's kind of like the video game Pac-Man. Anybody ever grow up playing Pac-Man in the stand-up arcade? Right? Got this little Pac-Man running around, eating up the dots. And then, if you remember, these colored ghosts, they're chasing you. And the whole goal is to find your way out, away from them. You know, if you remember, get to the edge of the screen, there's this little door. Through the door I go, boom, I'm on the other side. Ha ha, you ain't got me. That's kind of the way I look at it. I try to simplify things, folks, because when they're, when they're too lofty and too high and too difficult to imagine, I have a hard time. So I simplify it. There's always a way out. Are you looking for the exit? Are you looking for the pleasure of the temptation? Because if you're looking for the exit, you'll always find it. And I believe that's what Scripture is saying, when you, when, is that when you're tempted... If you come to God and ask him for power and strength, he will grant it to you. And he will grant you a way out of that situation. And let me tell you something, church. It's going to be supernatural. Meaning outside of your natural ability. Stop looking in your ability and start looking at his supernatural. Because this is what God does. God takes our natural, puts his super to it, and causes something to happen that you can't even fathom ever could have happened. This whole idea of prayer has changed my life. Like, to the point that, you know, I gave my life to Christ on that day, December 20th, 1998, and I lived for Jesus. I was on fire for Jesus, and I, I would worship like crazy, but my, my personal prayer life would lack I think that's what happens to most of us. Our personal prayer life is what lacks quite a bit. And then when I made the decision to seek God, 
to take it really back to the basics of Jesus' teaching on how to pray. It changed my life. I can honestly tell you today that I am not the man that I was five years ago. In five short years, I can tell you that I wasn't, I'm not the man that I was three years ago. And the only difference with a little bit of maturity is the way I pray, when I pray, how I pray. I am drastically different because I pray. Drastically different. God has changed me in ways. He has set me free from some some bondages and some things that I used to believe and think about myself because of my time with him. And so my encouragement for you is that when you leave, be changed. Be changed when you walk out of this place. My prayer all the time when people leave is that, that they walk out different from when they walked in. I believe that you have the actual ability to get out of, be a different person when you walk out of God's presence. You should never walk out of God's presence the same as you walked in. There should be something different about you, whether it's the way you think or the way you act or the way you speak or what people see. You have to realize that there is this God that from the very beginning, and I shared in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, he breathed his breath of life life into you. He said, I am giving you life because you are my creation. You are beautiful. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I have plans for you you can't even possibly imagine. I have things for you to accomplish that will transcend the understanding of every single person around you. All you need to do is just press into my presence. All you need to do is seek me because when you seek me, you will find me. That's it. When you seek me, you will find me. When you have a hunger for prayer, when you search after it, you will find him in ways and he will do things in your life you can't possibly imagine. And let me tell you something, even that's not about you. That's all about him because what he does in you, he's going to give you the opportunity to help someone else do. Because that's what he does, that's who he is, and that's his purpose for your life. If you are going to be a believer of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're going to serve him, then this right here, church, is your truth. This is who he says you are. This is how he says you should live. This is the way he says you should honor and respect him and honor and respect leaders. And this is the way he says you should give, the way he says you should pray, the way he says you should serve. This is the way he says you should live. And Jesus laid it out. This is how you should pray.